Welcome to Technology Transfer IP. Technology transfer is the process by which valuable research, skills, knowledge, and technology developed by educational institutions is transferred to industry for development and to products and services that will benefit society. From basic patent licensing to promoting startups, entrepreneurship, and industry collaborations, while also investing in and managing technology developments. We bring you conversations with the leaders in technology transfer who will share their stories, including their successes, challenges, and expectations for the future. Here's your host, Lisa Mueller. Hello and welcome. This is Tom Hockaday, and I am your host of this episode of Technology Transfer IP. Today, I'm speaking with Lisa Mueller, who normally hosts this program. I was the subject of one of Lisa's podcasts back in October 2020, and so today the tables are turned, which is great. For those of you who may not be familiar with Lisa's background, she's a shareholder with Casimir Jones, a boutique intellectual property law firm whose main office is in Middleton, Wisconsin. Lisa splits her time between the Chicago and the North Carolina offices. For almost 30 years, Lisa has provided strategic counsel on complex patent issues to clients in the plant, food, pharmaceutical, biopharmaceutical, biotechnology, and chemistry sectors. She brings an in-depth knowledge and extensive experience to her work, advising clients on the global patent protection, freedom to operate, and validity of blockbuster drugs they aim to produce and distribute. Since 2001, Lisa has worked closely with in-house legal departments of global pharmaceutical firms regarding their patent development and enforcement strategies. In this partnership, she provides training to new in-house counsel and meets with scientists and other business development staff to anticipate and resolve a wide array of problems, including navigation of U.S. Food and Drug Administration approvals. Lisa is a thought leader on pharmaceutical and biopharmaceutical patent law. She speaks frequently to legal and industry groups and publishes widely. She was the author of an award-winning blog, Brick Wall, as in B-R-I-C, which provides unique insights on patent law developments in the life sciences industry in Brazil, Russia, India, and China. Lisa is currently the author of the blog Bricks and Beyond, which provides unique insights on patent law developments in the life sciences industry, not only in Brazil, Russia, India, and China, but in other countries outside of the US as well. Lisa also edited and authored a chapter in the book entitled Global Patent Protection and Enforcement of In Vitro Diagnostic Inventions, published by Walters Kluwer in November 2019. As an avid believer in giving back, Lisa is on the Autumn EDI Committee, a member of the Mentorship Committee of the Foundation for the Advancement of Diversity in IP Law, and a co-founder of GEDIT, standing for Global Equality, Diversity and Inclusion in Technology Transfer, a platform and community with a mission to promote equality, diversity and inclusion in tech transfer across the globe. And with that very impressive background, welcome to the podcast. Welcome to your podcast, Lisa. Thanks so much for that very kind introduction and for hosting this episode of Technology Transfer IP. Well, Lisa, thanks again for agreeing to do this podcast. You typically start your podcasts off by asking your guests about their journey to tech transfer. Can you tell us about your career journey and how you got into patent law? 
Sure. I actually didn't start my career off planning to be a patent attorney, but rather an environmental attorney. However, in 1992, after I graduated law school, I then took the Illinois bar exam and the country was still in the midst of a recession. And strangely enough, I couldn't find a job in environmental law anywhere in Chicago where I live. So as a result, I started to explore some other options other than environmental law. And because my undergrad degree was in chemistry and biology, someone I know suggested I think about pursuing a career in patent law. So after that, I applied to a few law firms that did patent work. And again, because I had a science background, I was actually hired by a small IP boutique firm in downtown Chicago. And it really was a great place for me to start. It was a really small firm with only eight attorneys. And because of our size, uh, I got my experience and a lot of hands-on training early on, and I was able to do a lot of things um, very quickly and learned a lot very, very fast. But one of the issues was um, over time, because the firm was so small, we were limited in the types of work and clients we could attract. So I stayed there a few years, and then after that, I moved on to a slightly larger IP boutique firm. And from there, I went on to a few larger general law firms with IP departments. And now, almost full circle, I'm back to an IP life sciences boutique firm. Oh, fantastic. Fantastic. And, and what do you enjoy the most about patent law? Well, there's a lot of different things that I really enjoy about it. Um, personally, I love to read and learn new things. And one of the really great things about patent law and technology is that you learn at least one new thing every day. And in fact, as my husband can attest, I get geeked out really easily. So patent law really suits my personality. Um, another thing I've really enjoyed is I've practiced now for almost 30 years, and I've seen some of the most significant U.S. patent law changes um, over time. There was the changes as a result of GATT that changed our patent term in the U.S. from 17 years from issuance to 20 from filing. Then there was the American Inventors Protection Act of 1999 that resulted in U.S. patent applications being published 18 months from their earliest priority date. And then most recently, the America Invents Act, the AIA, which changed our system from first to invent to first to file. So it's been really fascinating to have this front row seat to experience how U.S. patent law has changed and evolved um, over the course of my career. Another thing I've really enjoyed is a large portion of my career has been spent in the diagnostic and pharmaceutical areas on products that can be used to detect and diagnose diseases and other medical conditions and then treat those diseases and conditions. So it's been really rewarding to be a part of that process with so many other people and all these brilliant scientists who've come up with this technology, particularly when those products are ultimately approved by the FDA, the EMA, and other regulatory authorities in other countries, and then finally meet those patients who really desperately um, and urgently in a lot of cases need them. And then finally, you mentioned my blogs. Um, I'm really um, fascinated and enjoy studying the patent laws of other countries and comparative law. And that's really one of my, my passions and one of the reasons why I've started those two blogs. So those are just a, a couple of the things that I really enjoy about patent law. Oh, thank you. Very good. Um, one sort of technical patent law 
question before we move on to talking more generally about the podcasts. Um, I I know that well, both me and others in the tech transfer uh, space um, struggled to think through and understand the difference between prior art searching and freedom to operate. I, I just wonder if you would mind explaining briefly the difference between those two. Yeah, that's a really good question. And that's something I know a lot of people do struggle with. And let me see if I can try and shed some light on that. So a prior art search or sometimes referred to as a patentability search is a search that's generally done to determine whether or not a potential new invention is new or what we call novel and inventive and um, or non-obviousness in view of what's already been invented and disclosed anywhere in the world. And that whole gamut of things of what's been invented previously and disclosed anywhere in the world, we call prior art. Now, we compare that with freedom to operate, or sometimes that's called a clearance search, which is a search to determine whether or not the commercial exploitation of an invention might infringe any patents that are owned by one or more third parties. So, Prior art and freedom to operate searches are designed with different objectives. And as a result of that, they ultimately produce a list of different relevant prior art. Um, although sometimes you will see some overlap between the two searches. So an invention might be patentable, but there may not be freedom to operate to commercialize that invention if there are some third party patents out there that have very broad claims that encompass the invention. So generally, a good way I try and tell people to remember the difference between the two is that when you're talking about a prior art or patentability search, that's really meant to answer the questions, is your invention new? Can I prepare and file a patent application on that invention? Versus a freedom to operate search, it's really meant to answer the question, can I commercialize my invention or maybe a part of it? And if so, am I going to infringe on someone else's patents? So that's just uh, some quick ways I try and explain the difference between the two. Thank you. I think that's really helpful and will be you know, great assistance to the, the audience because sometimes these two things uh, do get confused. Moving on to the podcasts, um, can you tell us how you came up with the idea of the Tech Transfer IP podcast? Yeah, no, definitely. So I've been a member of Autumn for a number of years and in 2019, I was at the annual meeting in Austin, and I was spending some time in the exhibit halls as well as during the receptions and the breaks. And I was just watching people and listening to people from tech transfer offices from all around the world share their stories. And they were talking about things that were working well and not well in their offices, their successes and their challenges, things like that. It was amazing to me to see not only just how collaborative people were, but also how willing people were to share and help one another. So I thought to myself, it would be really neat if we could learn more about these people in their offices, more than just at the autumn national meeting or at the regional meetings. So I started to think about how we could possibly do this. And then the idea came into my head about um, doing a podcast. And had you done any podcasting before Tech Transfer IP? No, I I listen to a lot of podcasts and love listening to podcasts, but I had never done a podcast at all. So without any direct experience or knowledge about podcasting, how did you get started? 
Oh, it's an it's an interesting story, and it's so typical me. So um, I thought very naively that I could just buy some books and watch some YouTube videos, and you know, be able to launch my podcast. You know, why not? There are all these podcasts that were launching, and I, I'm thinking to myself, well, really, how hard could this be? Yeah, and those are the typical kind of famous last words. Um, so between work and everything else I had going on, trying to learn the ins and outs of podcasting by reading about it in a book and watching a few videos, it was not going well at all. It was it was so slow and I was getting frustrated. So I decided that if this was something I really, truly wanted to do, I was going to have to get more serious and find a different route. So then I started doing some research on maybe taking a workshop or a course that taught the basics of podcasting. And in my research, I came across um, a website by a man named Jody Smith, who called himself the Podcast Lodge Coach. And um, he basically said on his website that he provided one-on-one step-by-step instruction on how to set up your podcast. And I reached out to him and he got back to me really quickly. And we had a really good conversation and um, I really liked his approach. And so I hired him to, you know, give me this one-on-one coaching, much like an athlete would have a coach. And so then during the Christmas 2019 holidays through early January, 2020, he and I spent time over Zoom over four or five weeks. And he was great. I mean, he really took me from the beginning of the podcasting process all the way through the end. So some of the things he did was he really um, spent a lot of time with me working on defining what the podcast was and what its target audience would be. And once we had that hammered out and it was uh, very clear, he helped me pick a name for the podcast. So that was one of the first things we did. And then um, there's tons of podcast equipment out there. And he was awesome in helping me figure out what equipment to choose and where to even purchase it. And then once I got all the equipment, uh, he spent time teaching me how to put it all together and how to use it, which was incredible over Zoom. Um, you would think that would be something more suited to do in person, but he was a he's a great teacher. So that worked really well. And then the next week thing we had to do was actually set up my podcast feed and you need a podcasting hosting platform in, in order to be able to podcast, which again was something I was not gleaning from all the these books and videos I was watching for some weird reason. So he set that up with me with Libsyn. And then you've got to submit your podcast to um, like Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and all those other companies that are out there. And he took care of that as well. So that was another thing that was really great about um, what he did. And then he suggested that I have some cover art for the podcast as well. And he suggested somebody who could do that, who, who did a great job. I really love the, the cover art that was done. And then he, he had me think about, well, do you want to have an intro and an outro for your podcast? And if so, uh, do you want to have somebody do voiceover for it? And we talked about that a lot. And ultimately, we thought it would be a good way to go, just given the nature of this podcast. So he helped me work on the intro and the outro. And then we we screened people to do the voiceover and ultimately selected one. So he was great. And we got all that done, I thought, in a pretty quick amount of time. And then in late January into early February 2020, um, I was done with my coaching and I felt confident I could start scheduling interviews and recording them and actually get them recorded without screwing it up. 
So um, because I spend a lot of time in our North Carolina office, since we have a, uh, an office there, uh, I decided I would schedule my first two interviews with Dean Stell at Wake Forest University and then Champ Gumpton at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And I did both of those interviews in person on campuses of both those universities, which was which was really great. And Dean's was the first one and everything went really well. And so that episode aired in February 2020. And then two weeks later, Champ's episode aired. So I was really excited. It was going well. And then I was also very excited because I was planning on going to the Autumn National Meeting in San Diego in the middle of March 2020. And I had a, a whole bunch of interviews lined up and and I was super excited about this because I'd really planned to make a, a debut and announce the podcast more formally and get, you know, tell people about it and hopefully generate some excitement about it. I had prepared some marketing materials and other things that I planned to to hand out. And I thought it would be a great debut um, for the podcast. But as we all know, our lives changed and things came to an abrupt halt in the middle of March um, and the autumn national meeting was canceled. So after that, I really wasn't sure how the podcast was going to be received because I'm like, how are people going to react to it? How are they going to hear about it? I was hoping word of mouth through the Autumn National Meeting. I kept plugging away at it and I continued to do interviews on Zoom and MS Teams. And I continued to market the podcast on LinkedIn and other social media platforms. And it seemed like despite the fact that we were all stuck at home for most of last year, that people appeared to continue to be interested in the podcast and enjoyed staying connected to one another and learning what their colleagues were doing. So it all seemed to, to work out pretty well. But that's kind of how I got started and kind of how we got to where we are now. Well, they're a great success. And, and that explains the professionalism behind them. And can you tell us how you prepare for each episode and how long that preparation takes? Sure. Well, Generally, after um, a guest agrees to be on the podcast, uh, we decide on a date to actually schedule the podcast. And we typically schedule about an hour for it. And then I go back and I draft an outline of questions that I propose to ask to the guests during the podcast. And this information, the list of questions also includes a background section of information on uh, the guests, which is usually the introduction that I do. And after I get that outline generated, I send it to the guests and I tell them, feel free to make any changes, corrections, additions, whatever you'd like. Uh, I try to be very, very flexible. So if a guest doesn't want to talk about something, if they don't want to talk about their office metrics, I'm fine with it. Um, I, I completely understand. Uh, likewise, I've had guests who've offered suggestions on questions to ask, and I'm like, absolutely great. I take it. So the whole goal is really not to put anybody on the spot or make anybody look bad. So I'm very flexible in terms of uh, how I generate the outline. And, and that's typically how we prepare for the podcast. And then in terms of how I come up with the questions, I like to do my own research and I try and learn as much as possible about the guest and his or her tech transfer office. I generally look at the website for that particular tech transfer office that the guest is from, as well as their LinkedIn page. And usually I can get a lot of information there. 
um, for guests such as yourself, Tom, who have a book, I, I actually read the book, unlike some late night TV show hosts who don't read the book and have people write questions for them. I do read the book um, and I would encourage people. Tom's book's great, just as a little side note. Um, or I've had a couple guests who've had TED Talks. I'll watch the TED Talk. So generally at the minimum, it's at least 1.5 hours, but it can be up to days, particularly, you know, if someone has a book like such as yourself. And then um, I also had Jason Owen Smith, who was on the podcast, who also had a book. So yeah, they can be anywhere from one and a half hours if there isn't much available online for me to do research on. Or like I said, it, it could take, um, take up to a week um, if I'm reading a book. And I imagine there's some editing. I mean, do you edit the episodes and, and how is that done? Yes, every episode is edited and they're actually professionally edited because much like thinking I could learn how to do the podcast on my own, I also thought I could learn how to edit the episodes myself. Um, but I grossly overestimated the amount of time and work that was involved. So I outsourced the editing to a company that's called Pro Podcast Solutions. And the same person, Luke Lacey, has been with me from the beginning. He's edited every episode to date. And um, fun fact, um, Luke's, he's a super great guy, but he's actually based in Ireland. Uh, so I think that's kind of neat. So this is all very international. And um, from start to finish, I mean, on average, how much time would you say that you spend on each episode? Yeah, I would say it's a minimum of five hours, but it can take as long as a week. And I'll explain to you a little bit how I get to that number. So we talked about that I prepare the outline. Um, so in addition to that, there's time involved in preparing the equipment and testing it before each episode. And that generally doesn't take too long. Then I typically pre-record the introduction on the guest background just so that's done and out of the way in advance so the guest and I can focus more on the substance of the questions and, and the guest can have as much time um, as possible. After that, the guest and I generally record the episode itself. And like I said, um, we usually schedule about an hour for that. Once the podcast itself is over, I then have to download the episode from the podcasting equipment itself onto my computer. Uh, once it's on my computer, then I have to upload it to the Pro Podcast Solution website. And that's where Luke is able to access it um, so he can edit it. So like Clockwork, every Friday or Saturday, Luke will send me next week's episode to review. So then over the weekend, I generally listen to the episode and see if any editing needs to be done. And I'll send Luke my comments either on Sunday or Monday morning. And either there's no additional editing needed or I'll say, you know, could you, you make these few additional edits? Or sometimes I don't like the way I'll ask a question and I'll re-record the question or I'll re-record the intro, um, the background, if I'm not happy with it. So after we edit the episode, what comes next on Monday or Tuesday morning is what we call the show notes for that particular week's episode. And if you go on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher and Spotify, you'll see there's a brief description, kind of a background of what the episode is about. And then it goes through um, 
various time points during the episode of particular topics. So if you wanted to go um, and listen to for your podcast, Tom, and listen about one particular topic that we talked about during the entire podcast, you can find it where that particular subject is in the show notes. So I review and then I edit those if they need editing, send them back. And then uh, Wednesday morning, the episode drops and then I send the links for the podcast to the guests and then promote it on social media. So again, as I mentioned, it takes at least five hours a week um, if there's more research involved, depending, again, if there's a book or something more involved, it, it may take a week's worth of time. So going back to your earlier thought of, look, how hard could this be? Um, there's quite a lot of explanation. There. There's a lot of work that that goes into these, and but it's it's great for all of us. I must say, in the community, it's great you're doing these. Um, and how do you find the guests for your podcasts? Yeah, it's that's a great question. It's it's evolved over time, um, as you can imagine. It was difficult at first, and I felt like I was stalking people, to be very honest, because initially I was going. And looking at the websites of various tech transfer offices from around the U.S. And with reading the bios of the individuals who made up that office and then just kind of blindly reaching out to people by email. And I was explaining them what the podcast was and asking if they might be interested in participating. And people were really great and really generous. Um, they were so kind. And I still do that somewhat now, but I'm very fortunate in the fact that because the podcast is now up over 60 episodes and it's becoming um, more familiar to people that people are starting to make recommendations of um, guests and introducing me to people they believe would make great guests. For example, last week's episode was Declan Weldon from Trinity College in Dublin, Ireland, and he was a re recommendation that came from Mark Saddam. So it's really been great that we've gotten to the point that people are starting to reach out to me to make recommendations. So for anyone listening to this podcast right now, if you have any ideas of any people you think would be a great guest for the podcast, feel free to reach out to me. It's greatly appreciated. And I've met some people and had the opportunity to interview people that I never would have thought thanks to recommendations from others. Oh, great. And um, so how many exactly have you done now? Uh, so far, 61 episodes. And could you share with us a, a couple of guests, interviews or experiences while you were recording them that surprised you? Well, um, since I'm a patent attorney, I think I'm going to construe surprise broadly and say that I'm always surprised or maybe the better words impressed by what I've seen a lot of the smaller tech transfer offices achieve. And here I'm talking about people or offices rather with one to three individuals, um, offices that I'm thinking of, for example, like Elmisha Campbell at Jackson State, Allison Best at Mississippi State, Rob Gerlach at Wichita State, Stephanie Miller from the Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University, Michael Pernham from Janella Research Campus, and then Gwen Holman at the University of Alaska Fairbanks. I mean, it's just incredible what some of these smaller offices churn out and what they're able to do with just so few people and limited resources. I, I'm just amazed. And then I think in one episode that really touched me personally was the one involving the Autumn Better World Project with George Chappella and Megan Pitcher, um, who are co-chairs of that particular committee. 
What I really liked about that episode was when George and Megan were just providing some examples of how tech transfer offices have helped to bring research to life. And then they go ahead and they show the ultimate impact that this research has had on improving the world as a result of its ultimate commercialization. I mean, some of the examples they provided, like Google, uh, the Honeycrisp Apple, it was just, it was really neat. And and I just found it really inspiring. And, and I think they're doing great work with that committee. And then kind of a funny one, um, in terms of unexpected surprises, um, I felt really bad when I was doing this podcast with Alistair Hick of Monash. He's a great guy. It was going really well. And then my power went out during the podcast and we got disconnected. He was so great about it. And thankfully, the power went on quickly. But that was definitely um, a surprise. And he was a great sport throughout the whole thing. I guess a a reminder, you never quite know what's going to happen next. And do you have any universities or tech transfer offices on your wish list for future interviews? Yeah, I have a couple that are on my wish list. I'd be interested in talking to someone from Duke or Stanford, MIT, and the Vanderbilt Tech Transfer Offices. I'm also super interested in really talking to tech transfers outside the U.S. I really want to try and broaden the guest list of the podcast, and I think it would be helpful not only for other tech transfer offices outside the U.S., but even those inside, if if we could get some insights and learn from what other tech transfer offices are doing outside the U.S., I think it would be really, really helpful for a, a lot of people in a lot of different areas. So if anyone outside the U.S. is listening to this again, please feel free to reach out and make some recommendations if you have them. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think we can we can all learn from what's going on in our own country, but in other countries as well. As you've expanded beyond the traditional tech transfer offices, could you share a couple of these non-traditional interviews that you've hosted? Yeah, there's been some really interesting ones. Um, one that comes to mind was an interview I did with Joe Rungi, Tyler Scher, and Charlie Litton, who are the hosts of this uh, very informative and, and very funny podcast called Innovation Overground. Um, it is a great podcast in that it looks at academic innovations broadly. So they'll do an episode on vaccines or sand or cellular-based meat. And they've got quite a few episodes, um, around 303 of them. Um, I'd encourage people, they're really, really well done. And and that was a fun one to do. A couple other ones that come to mind as well is I talked with Louise Epstein, who's an executive in residence at the Austin Technology Incubator and also principal advisor with the LARDA Institute. That was really interesting to learn about how the LARDA Institute helps nationally and internationally with the TABA and SBIR funding. So I thought that was a a really interesting episode. And then Kirsten Lute, who's a partner at Osage University Partners, that was a great episode, I thought, for people who didn't realize, including myself, that Osage University Partners is really a venture capital firm that invests in startups that come out of top universities. So that, that was, I thought, a very interesting episode. And then I've done several episodes kind of focusing on um, equity, diversity, and inclusion. And I talked with Elaine Spector at Herity and Herity. Um, She's really an amazing attorney who's really working very hard and very passionate in terms of moving the needle and improving equity, diversity, and inclusion in patent law. And I thought that episode tied in really nicely with 
one that I had done with Megan Anstuce from the Kentucky Commercialization Ventures, who's the chair of the Autumn EDI Committee, who's doing wonderful, wonderful things on that topic, along with Nicole Mercier at Washington University in St. Louis, who's also um, really been moving the needle in that regard. And then I thought that episode with Elaine also tied in really well, Tom, with the episode I did with you and Megan, Almisha Campbell, Angie Miller, and Natalie Cozier for Get It as well. Well, it's certainly um, all of these. I mean, the the expansion from university tech transfer offices to, to talking to people from some of the offices and institutions around this have been very helpful as well. Um, so, so looking forward, what are your plans for the autumn national meeting in New Orleans coming up in February 2022? Well, first of all, I've got everything crossed that uh, we're going to keep the Delta variant under control and we're all going to be able to meet in person. I'm going to be optimistic that that's going to be the case. And I'm really hoping to do what I was planning on doing in San Diego in 2020, which was um, do live interviews from the national meeting, because I think it'll be really interesting to get people's thoughts in real time on the meeting. Um, and I think people will have a lot of interesting things to share since it'll be the hopefully the first time we'll be back together in person after COVID. And then I think, as you know, Tom, I tell a lot of my guests um, when they're on the podcast um, that if they're going to Autumn National Meeting as a thank you, I definitely need to um, buy them a drink at the national meeting. So um, I'm happy to say I'm going to have to be buying a lot of drinks, which I'm excited about. But seriously, I'm I'm hoping I can work it out um, to find somewhere at Autumn National to have some type of short reception with all the past guests to just say thank you for their time and their support of the podcast. And, and I think it would just be really nice for all of us to get together and just spend some time um, together talking and, and kind of catching up. It will. It will, for sure. And it's a great group of people. And um, we're all looking forward to that. So just to finish off, Lisa, I mean, how do you find the time to do all of this you know, and the podcast? Um, it's, it's very impressive. Well, thank you, Tom. In case you couldn't tell, I really enjoyed doing the podcast. And I've been so fortunate to meet so many incredible people through it. And they've all been so kind, um, such as yourself, Tom. So I really don't mind finding and making the time for it. But to answer your question, I'm a really early riser. Um, I'm up really early every day around 5 a.m. And so I'll usually work on outlines and things like that then, or I'll do it on the weekends. Um, I have to listen to the podcasts that come from Luke on the weekends anyway. And so I really, I make the time for it. it. It's not too terrible. And so far, I've been able to balance everything. And, and I hope it continues to stay that way. Well, thank you, Lisa. And and finally, just to, to wrap up, I mean, thank you so much for providing uh, all of the information you have, you know, on the background and insights um, about the podcast uh, today. And, and also, I hope it's given you an opportunity to uh, understand and, and think how it's like for the people you're interviewing on the podcasts and what it's like to be at the other end of the microphone. 
Oh my God, this is so nerve-wracking and I'm sweating profusely at the moment. So I'm so sorry I put all the rest of you through this. Yeah, that's right. So we've all been through it, but you're doing great. You're doing great. Thank you. Um, And if any of our listeners want to reach out and ask you any questions about this or or anything else, um, where can they reach you? Sure. They can send me an email at llmueller at cashmerejones.com. So that's L-L-M-U-E-L-L-E-R at C-A-S-I-M-I-R-J-O-N-E-S.com. Fantastic. Well, look, thank you so much for appearing on your own podcast, Lisa. Um, It's been great to uh, have this opportunity to talk to you. Thank you. And thank you, Tom. It's really been an honor to be interviewed by you for this podcast. So thank you again. Thank you for listening to Technology Transfer IP. Please visit us online for more resources at techtransferipforum.com. New to Tech Transfer or a seasoned pro? Autumn is the global member organization for Tech Transfer and is here to help you get connected, get smart, and get ahead. Whether you work in academia, research, government, business development, corporate engagement, or startups, Autumn is dedicated to supporting you through education, advocacy, networking, and promotion. Join and you'll receive 20 free live webinars, as well as meaningful discounts on meetings and courses insider access to a vast network of colleagues to help you through challenges, and align on new technologies and the university decision makers who license them. Membership is open for 2023. Join us.